2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like spinach,
3: ladders and falling. Or babies, rabies and scabies, Hades, ladies and gradees. That's all about the history of failure and exams. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of mountains is, in fact, all about freedom, prejudice mm. and the absence of history. Ah. Oh. Did Very you know good. that? I did know that. You did know that? Yes. We talk about that in, in, <laughs> our, in our lovely book, <laughs> Histories of the Unexpected, how everything has a history.
2: The man sitting opposite me is... The Nib of History itself. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello,
3: Sam. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the Basildon Bond of world <laughs> history. What a name. See so what I've done there? I've sort of made it sort of like exciting and spy-like, but combining it with stationery. It is the, <laughs> the, the truly wonderful historical adventurer, Mr History himself, Dr. Sam Willis. Well, thanks for
2: listening, everyone. We are um, today going to be talking about the history of writing. Now, it's a subject that we've touched on several of our previous podcasts. Is it not, James? It certainly is. I we were have... talking about my um my
3: writing slope. I have just on your left there for our boxes podcast. You did, and you have another writing slope there. How can you have two writing slopes? I don't know. I've only have only just realised? I've got to. It's, oh no, two... that, well, that one isn't. That's this is my writing slope. Oh, but that looks that looks like a writingy slopy yep.
2: box thing. Well, the one on your left is an actual box, and this one is my writing slope. So I, I haven't sort of but got, got we, lost in my stuff. We
3: have talked a lot about the history of writing across. The past few years, we've looked at the history of the pen, the history of the desk, the history of the study, the history of books. It's something that we are very much interested in.
2: Yeah, and we've done the signature. We talk about the signature. Ooh, we've done in the our signature. Live show. As we've well. done paper. Yeah, lots and lots of things. So it's, it's, it seems natural and appropriate for us to do the history of writing. Now, um, we, we did this because I was up in London doing some work in the British Library. Um, I was doing some work on Highwaymen Such is my life at the moment Fascinating Very exciting Really good We should do a separate one on Highwaymen soon And I went to the amazing writing Making Your Mark exhibition That was on at the British Library And I got to interview Dr Peter Toth Who is one of the people who was behind um, putting on one of of the co-curators The four co-curators of the exhibition Managed to have a chat with him, and we are going to play the interview after we've had a bit of a chat about writing yes. ourselves. So
3: I've seen the exhibition, but you haven't. But you know a fair few things about writing. Well, writing. I've seen, I've seen, I haven't actually been, but I've uh, I've been on their website. I've seen the kinds of things that they're talking about, and it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the things that struck me about it is the way in which it looks at the story of writing from the beginning. Yeah. And you know, very often, a lot of the stuff that we've done has talked about writing in the Western modern Western world. I suppose we we sort of branch out a little bit, but by that by that I take that Oxford University definition of of modern history, which is anything that's not ancient. Mm-hmm. So we've done a little bit of sort of ancient stuff, but it tend it's tended to be you know, um, it's tended to be the last two thousand years. But what's striking about this is the global reach of it. And the way in which it goes right back to the sort of earliest earliest forms. And I think one of the things that shocked me most about it, or interested me most about it, was the, the range of writing examples from say two, three thousand years ago that were just about every day.
1: Yeah.
3: You know, and it's people it's it's a, a girl going to school. Um, it is a you know it's somebody who hasn't been paid, yeah. so so they are communicating these very simple, ordinary, everyday things in writing.
2: I, I I completely get that point and I do agree with it totally. But the reason for being surprised—that's that's interesting, isn't it? Why
3: are we surprised that people are doing this everyday stuff? I think as a as uh, I think the thing that struck me is that when I study the rise of literacy in an English context and you look at who is controlling the written word, it tends to be, it starts off with churchmen and it is men and then it goes into government and it is very, it's driven by the state Mm -hmm. and that what you don't find so much of is writing being used to communicate ordinary things outside of that so it is really striking to see to capture that stuff much much earlier.
2: So as a professional historian that's definitely refreshing and and lovely but yes. I think that the, the, the general Punter, who's turned up at the exhibition, yep. would be as equally impressed yes. by seeing something that's, you know, several centuries old, that's talking about them going yep. shopping for some Oh, absolute, absolutely. So, so there's, there are two different answers, aren't there? There's yep. the, the answer for the professional historian who knows that there are, there's loads of writing associated with administration, associated yeah, with yeah, governments yeah. But then there's... Um, someone who's just interested in history and they'll go along to the exhibition but they still would go, oh
3: wow, they've gone to buy two loaves of bread. Oh, yeah. which, but... it, which is great because how do you access the ordinary life of an everyday person yeah. from 4,000 years ago? There's this one, there was this one tweet from uh, the British Library Medieval Manuscripts that I came across, which is a 4,000 year old Babylonian clay tablet that's been loaned to the exhibition and it says that it, it, it contains a list of cattle and donkeys yeah. ordered as gifts to a temple by somebody named (laughs) bought by a sheep
2: (laughs) yeah Um, the variety of things what what really struck me most was that you have um, so many different ways that you can study writing but the exhibition has managed to encompass so many of them it hasn't just gone down the ancient shopping route or it hasn't just gone down the um government administration route or the material culture of writing it's kind of done them all which is um what really appealed to me because it's very it's what we do basically on our podcast it's 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 exploding a subject and saying actually you can look at it this way you can look at it that way you look at it all sorts of these these variety of ways so i was hugely reassured actually that 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 they were doing something that that um I think, made the most out of the material they had. Yes. Whereas each, each, every single thing in that exhibition is completely amazing, and you can make an exhibition on the theme, almost whatever it is, but they've managed to get them all together, and nothing is lost by doing that. Brilliant. Should we listen to the, yes. the interview? let's listen to the interview. Okay. Do you want to introduce it? This is me, in London, talking to Dr Peter Toth, the co-curator of the Writing Making Your Mark exhibition that's on currently at the British Library. Hello everyone, well I'm delighted to be in the British Library and I've just been to see their new exhibition on the history of writing which is full of wonderful unexpected subjects and I'm here with someone who's going to tell us all about it. Peter, will you introduce yourself for me?
4: Hello, it's very nice to meet you. I'm Peter Toth, curator of ancient and medieval manuscripts here at the British Library and I'm also one of the four curators who organised, curated and looked after this exhibition which we have opened now, Writing Making Your Mark
2: writing and making your mark. It was it was wonderful. I love the fact that there was a team behind it. I wasn't expecting that. Was that does that mean there were some good arguments about
4: what, what went in? It is because uh, it was unexpected even for the library <laughs> how diverse the subject of writing is. Sure. So we wanted to explore it from various angles and also in a global context for which we had to have a team who is and who has expertise on various aspects, especially the Asian and African languages and yeah. writing systems, to which I have no clue, I have to confess that. Yeah, yeah. And we had two people, myself and another one who was the lead curator, Adrian Edwards, who looked after the Western side of things. So the yeah. Roman alphabet, the print in the in Europe and in the States. And the other two looked into an amazing array of writing systems and histories. Yeah. And this is how we put together this exhibition to be so global, so diverse and so big.
2: Yeah. It's lovely to see historians all working together to produce something so magical actually um one of the things james and i both with our podcast we've talked about writing we've talked about pens a lot we've talked about books and printing a lot because it's a wonderful starting point to open up all sorts of different subjects which is what you do so magnificently in the exhibition um what's your favorite bit
4: it's hard to say, you see, because it varies. So my favourite bit at the beginning was to find the the oldest object in the library, because sure. we have been told and we have been saying that the oldest thing in the library, unexpectedly, is not a book, nothing written on parchment or paper, but a piece of bone, the Chinese Oracle bone, yes, yeah. which are thought to have come from about 1300 BC. Yeah. And unexpectedly, another thing unexpected, <laughs> we found in the papers of a pioneering British photographer from the early 19th century, a piece of stone carved with Egyptian hieroglyphs mm. in the boxes of his papers, which came to the, ri- to the library quite recently as a donation from the family, a carved piece of stone on limestone filled with hieroglyphs. So we had to ask expert advice from the British Museum to date it and to read it, and it turned out to be much older than the Chinese uh. Oracle Bones. So that's the oldest object currently on display in the exhibition, which is more than three and a half thousand years old, that's predating a couple of centuries the Oracle Bones.
2: Yeah. It's such a lovely sense of the library being alive your collections continually growing mm. you guys continually discovering stuff it's not like you've got a solid single collection which remains the same and people are constantly going back to it everything's alive and dynamic about it which is what you get a real sense of in the exhibition as well and you can now i know there were four people involved i can see how how it all it all happened i i liked so many different aspects of it i thought the chinese typewriter mm. Was uh, so from the early 20th century. That's a seriously amazing invention. I got no idea how it would work, and I've, even if you left me in a room with that for a year, I
4: wouldn't be able to make it work. Which is, <laughs> I think, which have been. The case with uh, with the Chinese as well, because there was a a manual published (laughs) next to to the typewriter itself, which told you how to use it, because its use and function is very different from the ordinary typewriters, as you may have seen it in the label. So you need to know all the 2,500 characters in Chinese, which are set up on the tray, and then you had to find the right one, which you wanted to use, with this little kit, Mm. and then lift it up and press it against the paper. And this is how you had to find every single piece on the tray and put them to the paper and to type the text, which must have been a very time-consuming kind of an experiment, but it wasn't if you Mm. got used to it.
2: What I liked about it is I was trying to think of what different aspects of writing really appealed to me, and I wanted to be able to say, well, writing for me is all about... Whatever it might be. And I think, it, for me, it was all about art, which we want to talk about in a minute, being able to express, use writing to express yourself and create something beautiful. Mm. Um, but it's also about speed. Mm. It's about saving time. Mm. I was always uh, told off at school because I wrote too quickly. Oh. Um, and I... I constantly didn't tell my teachers, but they were missing the point. If I didn't get all of my ideas down, then I was missing some of my ideas. Mm-hmm. I and mean, Would they not be happier to have something slightly scribbled but mm-hmm. have all of my ideas out? Mm-hmm. Apparently not, uh, which I still maintain is the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you look at all of the different things here, the James Joyce's mm-hmm. his crazy notes mm-hmm. when he sort of vomits out words, <laughs> that really appealed to me. <laughs>
3: like
2: and the um, the wonderful thing about... It's a form of Arabic, mm-hmm. which is designed so that you don't take you take your nib off the page as few times as possible to speed up your writing Uh so that those things kind of combined with the with the typewriter I really liked Mm, mm,
4: mm. Mm. because these were the two driving forces in the evolution of writing to to write as fast as possible as much Mm. as possible in a relatively short amount of time but on the other side there was always this demand to to make it beautiful to yeah. make it artistic, to make it very clear. Sometimes it's cl- this clear this this beauty, was actually damaging the clarity of writing. So there was another aspect, and that was clarity and the fact that it is recognizable as writing and text. And these three aspects or topics were fighting and you know against each other. Sometimes it was beauty actually overshadowing clarity and speed sometimes it was speed when, when shorthand was invented for example hardly any people could read that but it was very fast and efficient yeah. and there was clarity which again damaged and overshadowed the other two and these three were competing throughout the history of, uh, of the evolution of writing that's
2: mm. beautifully explained can you write in shorthand
4: I can't. No. My mom can. Can you? Yeah. Would you like I've always wanted to be able to. My wife can, but I can't. So I was actually surprised, how unexpected, that uh, uh, a lot of people can still use it and they actually use it in taking minutes and meetings. Yeah. So I would really love to know how it works. Uh, there was a, uh, an interesting, funny re- reference to shorthand in Count Dracula by Bram Stoker because um, Jonathan Harker uh, keeps his records and diaries in shorthand and the Count wants to see it. And he takes it as an insult that he cannot read shorthand. <laughs> and he destroys all the diaries.
2: Okay. I mean, shorthand, it's something I'd like to be able to do just because it's a, it's a nice skill to have, but mm. it kind of defeats the object for writing for me because I'm lucky in that if I write something down, I'll probably remember it. Mm. Uh, and shorthand's all about you being able to read what you've already written. Whereas for me, the priority with writing is communication to another person. That's true. Um, and it, I think it would depend. I suppose the point is, it's so personal, mm-hmm. the exhibition. So, you talked about the oracle bones.
4: What was the purpose of that writing? That was about getting divine advice yeah. and, and answers to your intriguing questions.
2: So, we have lots of very ancient examples yes. of handwriting that moves up through printing presses, oh. and then we've got all the sort of wonderful things from the 20th century. And I think what's what's so fabulous about it is that if you go to the exhibition, everyone will find something different within it which will appeal to them, and it will make them think differently about not only their handwriting, but why they write in the way they do and why they're interested in that particular aspect of it Mm
4: -hmm. does that make sense yes it does and that was one of the i'm very glad that this message went through because that was one of the main drivers of this exhibition Ah. to make people think about not just the history of writing which was basically on the second place we wanted to use the history of writing to make people think about their own handwriting and their own engagement with this remarkable tool which is like magic, right? Which you can turn your, your 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 words, the language and thoughts, even the unspoken word, into something visual.
2: What I also love about it is the so you're you're seeing lots of examples of, of someone's handwriting at a snap point in snapshot in time. Okay, but people's handwriting also changes over time. Mm-hmm. So your handwriting now will be different to your handwriting when you were a younger man when you were a teenager, when you were a child. And um, that's always fascinated me. But even at one particular time in your life, you can write in different ways. So I could write... Okay, for granted, I'm very interested in handwriting, but I can write in three or four different ways right now, and it depends who I'm writing to Uh on how I write. And my daughter was doing some homework the other day, Uh and she could flit immediately between proper handwriting Mm -hmm. and I want to finish this as quickly as possible, the handwriting, so I can go upstairs. Uh, uh, and I, I love that as well, the, 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 the sense of a personal history in people's writing.
4: Yes, that's present in the exhibition. And also you can, you can wonder about how uh, various types of writing were used at the same time for various purposes. For example, the star item, Lindisfarne Gospels, you yeah. can see more or less, the, there is a 200 years difference between the main text in Latin, the Gospels. And the english translation of the same text between the lines there is a 200 years difference but the, the writing used for english is so much different from latin mm. and people just somehow had that feeling that if you write in your native tongue that should be written somehow differently. It doesn't mean anything about the dignity or the rank of, of, of that writing. It should be different. And that is something you can see all over the Middle Ages in Europe and everywhere else. That the that the, the vernacular, the, the particular language of the of the of the area was written in a different way than the Latin, the official, the nice, yeah. The liturgical the holy language was written. So
2: there's a sort of history of authority and breaking the rules and being slightly subversive there as well the i also like the idea of letters themselves telling you something about the society the the great example from the russian revolution where they they believed that
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com
0: slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: The
2: way that they formed their letters would say as much about the actual words that they were writing.
4: That's very true. And this is why, actually, this is such a common thing that governments sometimes want to change this because they are aware of this additional message behind the letters. So we have an, we have an example of this for, from China the simplified Chinese, which was part of the Cultural Revolution. So they wanted to change the past, and especially people's relationship to the past. So they abolished certain letters and characters from Chinese, so that this reference to past things like religion or cultural heritage disappears. Mm -hmm. And a new language, a new society, a new culture appears, and that was present in the Russian Revolution as well, when the, the old Russian Cyrillic characters were actually... Uh, deleted from the alphabet because they had references to the cross, they had references to Old Church Slavonic, and they deleted them. And the new language
2: appeared. So you've got to be able to see the gaps in what you're looking at, as well as actually read, you read, read the document themselves. It's it's a fundamental point for all historians to learn, which is why I think the exhibition is is so important. I love. I also love the fact that when you you think about writing, and someone says, "Okay, what about?" Um, inventions associated with writing. Oh, you go, ah, printing press, or the stylus, or the nib. But the 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 one message you get from this exhibition is that writing itself is an invention. It didn't just happen, it was invented. It is something that our brains have created and then practised. I absolutely love that. That really stopped me stop me short thinking about it as an invention
4: and that's again a very historical concept because people always try to figure out who is the inventor of writing so they always try to imagine a, a particular figure with a name who invented writing so sometimes it's it's taught the 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 god of wisdom in egyptian he was credited with the invention of writing for in for the for the hindi tradition there's another god behind writing and it's surprisingly, unexpectedly, the Roman alphabet was credited with a woman mm. who, who is called Carmenta, who was a semi-goddess in Italy, and she is she was believed to invent the Roman alphabet. So the, the, the idea of invention is pretty much present in the tradition and the historical tradition and the legendary tradition about writing, although... Scholarship highly debates this idea, so we can't name an individual inventor of writing. And it may not be an invention like uh, printing presses. It's It's not a sudden kind of, you know, phenomenon which starts from nothing, out of blue. It, it's, it has a very, very long history, and 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 there is no genius who invented it. It's us people who invented yeah. it. And this is why, because this is a common story of all of us. Yeah,
2: it's beautiful. It is a common, it's a collective thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I'm just trying to think back to, through the exhibition now to see that some of the other favourite things. I love that, you know, talking about it being an invention, it's also, it's learnt behaviour. Mm-hmm. So if someone can write, mm-hmm. then there's the shadow of the person who's taught them to write.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's a, there's like a shadow chain of people going back through history, but all you've got is this moment
4: mm-hmm.
2: when it's, it manifests itself in some form. What I'd I'd really like, what's the um, clay tablet that's right at the beginning with the curious sort of scratch marks in
4: it? What was that? That is a cuneiform tablet, which is actually the tiniest, smallest thing in the entire exhibition, next to the largest one we have. And that is a representation, an example of the earliest writing system of the world, cuneiform, which started uh, with um, something which is hardly writing at all, uh, which is the oldest item in the exhibition from the same area, pretty much from the same period from about 5,000 years ago and that's the proto-cuneiform a pre-cuneiform sign which is um, half writing because it's just images of things and then particular a complicated signage system for numbers yeah and this is how writing started and this is why we think that cuneiform writing is probably the oldest writing system in the world
2: i love to imagine if you think of the layers of history of people working with this kind of writing i love to imagine the moment where a historian or an archaeologist realized mm-hmm. that it was writing and not a pattern yes and that they were actually trying to communicate
4: something and that must have been a great moment of invention. So in that sense, invention and the idea of invention is present in the history of writing and the discussion about writing. Just if we think about the the great movement of the decipherment of the Egyptian language in 1822, more, more or less 200 years ago, uh, which was by the French scholar Champollion, who used the Rosetta Stone, as you say, as you know, uh, which has... Uh, three kinds of writing systems in two languages, and he used the Greek translation of the Egyptian texts to decipher the Egyptian uh, writing system on the basis of names, because he supposed that names should be more or less similar in all of these languages and writing systems. So he he, uh, he did know where the names are in the Greek texts, and he tried to find out a actually on the basis of the size of the text and the numbers of lines, where those names could be in the Egyptian text and tried to figure out how he could read the names in the in the hieroglyphs. And he was the first who discovered that names in ancient Egyptian are put in a circle, which we all know now as the cartouche, which is for the royal names. And this is how he started to decipher the royal names and uh, the hieroglyphs behind it. And he was quite unlucky because he started with a very stage of the hieroglyphs from the second century BC uh, which is a complicated uh, system of the hieroglyphs because at the later you go the more complicated it gets and Paul Champollion had to work on a very complicated sign system of ancient Egyptian yeah. what he managed.
2: But you see the kind of the layers of what's going on here so you've got the people who've invented it you've got the people who've taught them how to do it and with these examples whether it's the Rosetta stone or that small cuneiform tablet mm. You've got a person trying to communicate something either to themselves for later recall or to someone else, and there's there's a fabulous example where you could take this this idea of, of all of these individual people, um, and you think about people as a group. It's collective writing, where there's a uh, a group of people in Bangladesh have signed a petition. Um, Against the division mm-hmm. of Bangladesh and in India in, in 1905. And that was so powerful, this, this collection of individuals all writing in a book. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the sense of that as well, the, the idea that you can have one person writing or a whole group of people.
4: Yes, that shows the power of writing, doesn't it? From up to down and from down. To the higher levels of society, and uh, that that is a particularly strong piece, actually, which contains sixty thousand signatures of everyday people recording their names and addresses.
2: Yeah, it's slightly frustrating. I mean,
4: just because of the problems of display, you can only display one page, but you you want to flick through it and see who all these people were, don't you? Which is why we digitise this content. So it will be digitised. It will be published online on the library's digitised manuscripts page, where you can actually turn the pages and see all sixty-five thousand signatures. Well, I'd actually love to do that. I'd spend hours. You'd see every
2: individual person, their own choice of handwriting. They're all signing a significant document. You can measure literacy as well as, you know, that's how people have used handwriting. You can see
4: how the multilingualism works in in one particular document, because people signed their names in English, some of them in the local script, in Indian and Hindi. So you can see how multilingual the area was and how powerful writing can be, even if you may not be able to read it.
2: That's very true. And I think we should end it there. Just a a thought about how powerful writing can be. It's an amazing exhibition. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It's writing, make your mark, and it's on at the British Library. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. Thank you very much for coming and seeing it. So that was my very enjoyable interview with Dr Peter Toth. James, were there any
3: bits there you were particularly jealous of not having seen in person? <laughs> <laughs> most of it, most of it. And having met the curator himself, who uh, who's, sounds enormously knowledgeable. I mean, one of the things that I think is most striking about it is the fact that it has been put together by four different curators. And I thought the interesting point there is that, that in order to really get to grips with the complexity of this material in that you're dealing with different time periods, different scripts, different kinds of language that you actually need for world experts. So you need people who can do, you know, who can do Africa or people who can do ancient civilizations. And that I thought was really, you know, really impressive. What was your favorite bit in the exhibition? There was a little bit about uh, typefaces in the Russian Revolution.
2: Oh, yeah. tell there's me a, about there, that. There's a cultural history of typefaces, which I didn't know anything about. Um, and the so this is after the revolution, and the revolutions decide that um, the actual design of the lettering they're going to use is going to say as much about their ideas and beliefs as the actual words that they get across, which is what... Um, it, it, it was profound and, and very interesting. And um, I've um, since come up with... The, come across all sorts of other examples, which I didn't know about, um, of cultural history relating to the way things are written. Um, One of them could have easily gone in our our, um, World War II book.
3: What's that? I Um, mean, not what's the World War II book, we know what that is, (laughs) but what what example? um, It was the Nazis.
2: And how they decided that a... That they basically changed the typefaces they used. There's a black letter one. Um, it was called the Black Letter Typeface. So in 1941, there's an agreement um, made between Hitler and the publishers of a, of, a, of a German nationalist newspaper, and they decide to. Abandon this black letter font and adopt one uh, one which is a much more more regular. So the black letters, is like the kind of heavily gothic script yes. that you might see, yes. which had been lost throughout a lot of Europe but after the Napoleonic Wars. But it stayed in Germany, and they decided it was too associated with things they weren't happy with. They actually rebranded it as um, as Jewish writing, Jewish letters, and it wasn't allowed to be used anymore. So the Nazis officially adopted a font. Um, and you can do this kind of cultural history of typefaces and fonts uh, right across time. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I'd love to know more about that. Um, I know here, here we are, um, Charlemagne had a particular typeface associated with him. Um, the Roman de Roi, de Roi um, was commissioned by Louis XIV. Um, Bonaparte, Napoleon, good old Bonaparte, he had his own typeface. Peter the Great, too. Um it's something you can be, you can follow right through yeah, history. Yeah.
3: And always, I mean, with um, Charlemagne, you uh, this is pre-type, but you're talking about a particular sort of Carolinian script, yeah. a Carolinian minuscule. Um, yeah, I think that I think there there's actually quite a lot of work that's been done on this by typographers and the meaning of of different kinds of typography. And that black letter script is really interesting because it has a history that's much earlier. It's one of the first um, forms of typeface that people that children would have learnt to use, learnt to read. So you learn to read with that. And where throughout the sixteenth and seventeenth and into the eighteenth century, where there are where there are particular passages that you want to emphasize and you want everyone to be able to read, you render them in that particular typeface. And we talked the other day when we looked at pirates and we looked at the book that you're publishing, The Notorious Murderous Pirates. um, And we looked at how Anne Bonny and and um, and her sort of female pirate counterpart was being were being used to advertise the book. Their names appeared in a different font, a different typeface from right, yeah. from other people. One of the sort of big questions, I suppose, that the uh, que- that the exhibition begs is this question of why did writing come into being? Why was it invented? Early on, um, and also another big question is: is you know how has what kinds of activities has writing facilitated and developed over time? You know, writing is a technology. Um, and famously people have, have argued that it has restructured the way in which people think, that it has enabled people to operate in different ways. Uh, historians or anthropologists who are interested in preliterate cultures, oral cultures, have argued that we shouldn't overemphasise that. But, you know, did you get a sense wandering around the exhibition of why why writing was useful? Why did people sort of invent it?
2: Yes, and, and there are so many different answers to that question, which is what I think was was yep. great. Um, I think the the idea of, of expressing opinions, um, either by writing an entire book or simply by approving something by writing, putting your signature to it. Yes, that was very powerful. Yes, so so you know your your opinion as a person is equally as valid with with your with your name. Yeah, as it is as as. And it, writing a 100,000 words. It's, writing it 100, word it's also
3: linked to very simple impulses and activities early on, you know, that can be as simple as counting, yeah. you know, as simple as literally counting. One of the most interesting things that I came across uh, was a 4,000 year old tablet that records workers' wages. And this is from Mesopotamia. Um, and, you know, it's. Absolutely extraordinary that something like that was used in a very practical sense um the other some of the other things that it's connected with are you know this kind of um being able to name things so the signature for want of another sort of phrase putting your name on something to identify that it is actually yours yeah. it's your property it's your coinage it's your whatever if you are seeking to impose ownership over something. You want to put your name on it, whether that be ownership through some kind of legal document, law, code that you're putting through, whether it be something on a a building that shows that it's yours, whether it be something on coinage, you know, the written word, your name. And we've looked at this when we wrote the book on Romans, that the how important those kinds of inscriptions were. Also, um, thinking about people dying and wanting to memorialise people which is a very basic human desire to want to be able to commemorate and memorialise. And so some of the earliest writing that survives to us is on, as you know, on gravestones. It's on inscriptions or funerary monuments, which have a, you know, long and ancient history.
2: The other bit I really liked about it was the um, physical side to it, that that writing is something that you have to be taught, that you have to practise. There's a repetitive element to it. So there's an entire world and history of exercise books and textbooks where people have to learn to write in yes. a certain way. And whoever's deciding how you learn to write and has decided there's an official way of writing. And if there's an official way, there's always an unofficial way. And that makes it fascinating. So I love the, the way that the official kind of um exercise books almost tee up a um tee you up to break the rules. Basically, yes. you know, and if you try and get me to write within lines, and I, I simply won't do it. <laughs> and I, I love that, you, <laughs> that, does not surprise me. There are also wonderful ways of um, subversive Sam of how to hold your pen and how that's changed, right? And there's the whole history of which hand you write with. Um, so, I'm right handed, I'm, yep. I'm, I'm very fortunate, I'm, I was not left handed and born in the Victorian period because they were all forced to write right handed, and there were special techniques. Invented by Victorian writing masters to train people out of their left-handedness, and there's a whole history of left-handedness, which I think is really interesting. Da Vinci was left-handed.
3: But if my my seven-year-old is left-handed, um, all of that with his left hand is extraordinary. Oh. <laughs> Says a right-handed brilliant, man. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, the other thing that I think came across in the exhibition um, is the is that they bring it up to the contemporary to today. So, you know, you go from Egyptian hieroglyphs all the way up to emojis. And one of the things that we're so used to today is, you know, working with digital devices, whether it be smartphones and texts, whether it be computers and email, whether it be coding, whether it be tablets. And there is a sense in which some people think that, there will be no use for handwriting in the future. Was that something that they dealt with at all?
2: Yes, there's a big bit at the end about where's hand, where, where is handwriting going. Yeah. Um, and one of the most reassuring things is um, they, they had a, a large piece of paper at the end of the exhibition where people were scribbling their own thoughts and some people just put their names, other people did some doodles. And um, it's such a kind of human thing to, to leave your mark, to make your mark at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, which I, I loved that. I thought that was really good and... Um, no, it's um, it's it it's much more reassuring than yep. than not. It's not frightening, um, as I suspect it could have been. They could have teed it up that way.
3: But there was, I, I think,
2: that... you, I think you leave with more pride in your ability to write than yeah, and more interest in how you write and what you're writing than what you you had when you arrived, which is which is the key point.
3: Yeah, there was a very interesting piece that I read. Uh, On their blog by uh, somebody who was a psychologist um, and one of the things, a child psychologist, and one of the things that she was doing there was talking about the usefulness of handwriting for being taught to children. And... She says that in a survey in the U.S. in 2012, they looked at the importance of handwriting. Some of the facts that they came out, some of the sort of um, analysis that came out of it, was that it actually enhanced fact recall and composition quality because you were learning to to um, because you were learning to write, and also when you're taught at that very early age to form letters, that's something that that enhances your ability to be able to read so actually being forced to do something yourself it also helps with critical thinking and language and the recall of concepts and i think there's something about writing that is connected to cognition i mean maybe maybe it's you know maybe it's because we've been so used to you know handwriting for so many years that we think in those ways and and new ways will evolve around you know uh, a sort of a keyboard and 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 screen but i think there is something in the importance of writing in that it i find it a really when i when i start thinking about things afresh i instinctively turn to a pad and paper. Yeah, it is. When I plan my when I plan my time, when I sit down and plan my my week or my year or whatever, it's always on on paper. And I think increasingly in this world of well-being where we're supposed to be sort of so sensitive to our our, our mental health and mental state, I think actually slowing down a little bit, going digitally dark and writing on paper is something that actually is fundamentally good for us. There's quite a lot of research on. You can buy those well-being diaries, you know, I can't, you know the ones where at the end of the day you're supposed to sit down and record certain things that have gone well yep. that day, as a way of sort of grounding you and 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 making you more appreciative of you know the life that we that we all lead. So, see, handwriting is a, is a very powerful thing.
2: I think it anchors things in time, doesn't it? Yes, literally anchors for me. If I sit down and I write something, it gets stuck in my head. It's usually chaotic and frenetic and scribbly, but it kind of happened. And if it's happened, it means I'm going to do something about it and I won't forget it. And that simply doesn't happen if I do it on my phone or on a computer.
3: And I wonder whether also it enhances creativity. When the wonderful Daniel Jameson, the playwright that we've been working with and friend of ours sat down and put together the plan for his ideas, framework for the live show of Histories of the Unexpected. If you have a look at that A3 sheet he did, it is full of doodles and scribbles and... Lines going from here to there, joining everything up.
2: Yeah, well, I think we basically said you can do the history of anything you want in the whole history of time, connected anywhere you want it to be connected. (laughs) Off you go. He he reduced it to an A3 sheet. Yeah, genius. Um, So, yeah, anchoring things in time, I think that's important. And um, it's certainly if I have to remember
3: anything. Brilliant. um, That's that's how I use it. So, if people want to see this exhibition, where should they go? This Making the Mark exhibition at the 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 British British Library. Library. And it's open, I think, for several more months. It's open until August. It's truly
2: brilliant. I loved it, and it's, it's changed the way that I think about all sorts of things. So um, well done, to the team at the British Library, and thank you very much, Peter Toth, for your time in talking to us. So, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, if you enjoyed it, uh, please let us know. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really matters. It helps us keep the mics on and keeping everything going. You can follow me, at Dr Sam Willis, on
3: Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter, at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on at UnexpectedPod. Now, for everything you, uh, we've got
2: coming up, stuff on our books stuff on our live shows we've got tons of live shows coming up and it's the thing that James and I enjoy more than anything else apart from our podcast and writing the books
3: (laughs) and And our our day job you you can find this
2: all out at historiesoftheunexpected.com do please get in touch Um, thank you so much for listening guys bye bye bye